If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to 1 Peter. Our time together this morning will be greatly helped by you following along in a copy of God's Word with me, the Bible. If you don't have a copy that you can call your own, there should be a copy underneath the seat in front of you. We'd love for you to take that home with you so that you could read and study and learn more about Jesus Christ and Him crucified for sinners. 1 Peter should be, be somewhere around page 1014 in that Bible. If you're not very familiar with what a Bible is like, the large numbers are chapter numbers, the small numbers are verse numbers. I'm going to begin reading in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Peter writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us today. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And we pray, God, and ask that you would help us now as we study your word to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. That you would give us eyes to see the truth of the gospel revealed in the word of God. That you would give us ears to hear the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified, that you would help us to apply the message of the gospel so that we might grow in conformity with it. And if we are not a believer here today, Lord, to respond to it by repentance and faith. Lord, we ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. There's a famous Peanuts clip where they're looking out the window, and Linus is sitting there. One of, one of the others says, sees it raining and is concerned. Concerned in particular that it's going to rain and flood the whole earth again, to which Linus replies, well, we know in the Bible that that's never going to happen again. God's promised that he'll never flood the world. To which they reply, you've taken a good deal off my mind today. To which he replies, good theology has a way of doing that. Good theology has a way of doing that, taking a lot of pressure off of our minds. And when we turn to passages like this that are famous for the theology that we derive from them, we derive a lot of comfort and help and hope. But do not be deceived by the passage today. When we come to texts like the one that we come to today, it's easy to read about. And it's easy to talk about because of its familiarity but it is hard to communicate with any substance about because everybody in the room already believes that they know what I'm going to say before I say it. Everybody already feels that they know the main point of the passage before the main point is even made. Be holy, so below be holy. When we come to a passage like this, the type of holiness that we're being called to is not simply a list of right things to do and wrong things to avoid. Rather, as we've been looking at in 1 Peter, these elect exiles in Asia Minor who are scattered throughout the Mediterranean world are offering praise to God in the midst of trials. And Peter is trying to clarify 
and be specific for them of what it looks like for them to live as a holy and separate and distinct people in a world that hates them and persecutes them. Their new family identity as one of the people of God summons them to a new way of life that is separate and distinct from the people that they live around in their communities. They are a new Exodus people, and they are called to have a new hope, and they are called to be holy. Four points will frame our study this morning. Hope is ready. Hope is fixated. Hope is transforming. Hope is holy. Notice first, hope is ready. Look again at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. As Peter exhorts these elect exiles to live a godly life in verses 13 and following, he actually reaches back to all the verses 3 through 12 as a way to ground his exhortation in God's saving work. Verse 13, therefore, or in light of all that I've already said, because of everything that I've already told you, And he does this, friends, because it's critical for us to see that the indicative of what God has done for them precedes the imperative of what they are called to do for God. Peter begins by celebrating the wonders of God's merciful love for us in Christ because believers are to obey because they are God's chosen people, because they have been begotten by the Father, because they have an untouchable inheritance because of the greatness of their salvation, because of the vastness of his mercy, because of the fact that he has sent his son to die on the cross for them. His great mercy and their living hope are the source of their obedience. Peter desperately wants his readers to see that God's commands are always rooted in God's grace, not the other way around. Without the indicative of what God has done for them, as one commentator noted, The imperative of what we are called to do is addressed to helpless sinners. We are the victims of an illusion. It becomes a commandment that crushes or drives us to vain purposes. The fruit of action must be rooted in the grace of God's redemption. The indicative of what God has done for us in Christ is always the basis of the imperative of how we should live our lives as Christian people. That's true in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, in 1 Peter. But as people who read the Bible, can we actually say his commands are always rooted in his grace? What about the large sections of the Old Testament where there are law after law after law and regulation after regulation after regulation and rule after rule after rule? Can we also say that in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, that God's grace is always the basis of his command? Yes, we can. If you're taking notes or you like to write in your Bible, then write in your notes or in the margin of your Bible, Exodus chapter 20. And there you will find before God gives them the 10 commandments in verses three through 17, that God says this to his people in verse two. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Who God is, I am the Lord your God. And what God has done brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, are the basis of the imperative of how they are to live their lives as his covenant people according to the Ten Commandments. It is not command, then redemption, but redemption, then command. 
That pattern is true in the Old Testament, and it is true in the New Testament, which is why the very first imperative in 1 Peter comes in verse 13, right after Peter exhorts us to prepare our minds for action and be sober-minded. Two phrases that explain, explain what we are to do in light of what we have heard in verses 3 through 12. First, we're to prepare our minds for actions, or more literally, what he's telling us to do is to gird up the loins of our minds. It's an ancient image of a man actually taking his long garment and tucking it in so that he can go running or do serious work. Peter is saying that hope will not become a reality without disciplined thinking and strenuous effort and deliberate action on our part. And that teaches us that Christian hope is not merely passive, as if we're sitting here waiting passively for hope to arrive. Christian hope is active. It will not happen automatically. It requires effort and concentration and intentionality on our part. This is one of the reasons that we have things like Sunday Night Theology, and we give away so many different books, and we ask you to read the books that you take. And we started in an academy to actually help you prepare your mind for living in this world. And it is one of the reasons that we read from our statement of faith or confessions of faith each week during our service of corporate worship to prepare us to live mentally alert in a Christ-denying, God-diminishing age. We roll up the sleeves of our minds every time we come together and do the hard work of reading and studying and learning so that we can, verse 13, Be ready for action as a congregation when it's time to vote members in or vote members out or discipline members for sin or affirm elder candidates or deacons and deaconesses as a membership. If we do not do the hard work of understanding what the scripture says about what is the gospel and who is a Christian and how a healthy church operates, then we will not be ready for action when it's time to take action individually or corporately, which is why we spend so much time going back to the basics of Christianity, reminding ourselves of the core tenets of the gospel each and every week, which is why we spend so much time catechizing kids downstairs and the basic tenets of the gospel so that they'll be able to recall it when it's time for action. We are, Peter says, to prepare for action, not passivity. We are to prepare our minds to do work. And second, we are, verse 13, to be sober-minded. Peter is not simply saying, refrain from drunkenness, though that's true and you should. He is referring to a way of living that is self-controlled so as not to become dull to the reality of God. Peter's concern is that we're going to be lulled into a drowsiness so that we'll lose sight of Christ's future revelation of himself by concentrating only on fulfilling earthly desires and therefore not be ready. Jesus said it like this in Matthew chapter 13, verse 22. As for what was sown among the thorns... This is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Ask yourself today, 
Are you distracted by the cares of the world? Do the deceitfulness of riches choke the word in your life? And how would you know if they are? To be sober-minded is to be realistic about the reality of sin and the folly of a utopian idealism and the danger of jealousy and the peril of sexual fantasy and the existence of hell and the destructiveness of gossip and the harmfulness of envy. It's not a joyless gloom, but it is actually living in the world in a self-controlled and attentive way so as not to be lulled to sleep by the world and therefore be rendered unprepared for action. It resists a way of living in the world that finds escape in a bottle or comfort in food or joy in accolades or distraction by constant busyness or meaning in money and material possessions. It is being alert and watchful and prepared for action because verse 13, hope is ready. Jesus said it like this in the parable. Then the kingdom of God will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all of the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while, there, while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Hope is ready for action. It is prepared to do something. It is living alertly in the world because the world is seeking to lull you to sleep. Hope is ready. Notice second, hope is fixated. Look at verse 13. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As Peter exhorts us to readiness, it's important that we see that there's a connection between verses 13 through 16 and the preceding paragraph. Peter emphasized in verses 3 through 9 that salvation of believers is eschatological. That is, it's an end-time hope. And now in verse 13, he urges them to set their hope completely on the grace that will be theirs, verse 13, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is the exact same phrase at the conclusion of verse 7. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In both verse 7 and verse 13, Peter reflects on the coming of Jesus Christ, the revelation of the one who is now invisible, because what we believe about the future completely controls how we live in the present, reminding us that God's saving work in believers is unfinished. He is not done with us yet. 
Though we are the recipients of the amazing grace of the gospel that Peter has written about in verses 3 through 12, we await a grace that will only be ours when Christ returns. Verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Future grace is the hope of the believer. Peter tells us what Paul does, that there is an eternal weight of glory that will transcend all of this light momentary affliction. So believers, Peter says, are to live in such a way now, verse 13, that they set their hope fully on the future grace that will be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ and so demonstrate that their desires for the consummation of the work that God has begun in them. I wonder if that's what your life communicates to other people and demonstrates. That your greatest desire in this life is the future grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Is that what your family would say this holiday season? Or your colleagues and coworkers? Or your neighbors and acquaintances? That what characterizes your life is a hope for the future that will be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The force of Peter's exhortation is heightened by the use of the, the adverb fully. It's not a gamble for Peter. It's an actuality for Peter. Our hope is so secure. Our hope is so sure that Peter says we can fully or completely or entirely bank on it. Peter says future grace is not so much an attitude that we cultivate as a reality that we recognize as we set our hope fully on Jesus Christ because verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter's constantly pointing us to God and not to circumstance, to God and not what's taking place around us, to God and not the events that are transpiring in our day-to-day lives or in the world around us. He wants us to see that our faith and hope are in God because God has given us this unshakable hope in Jesus Christ. We are to fix our hope on the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are to be fixated on the revelation of Jesus Christ as we reorient our thinking to live alertly and soberly in this world. We are to be so heavenly minded that we can actually do earthly good. Because when we hope, it becomes a motivation for love as we set our gaze on Jesus Christ. Not simply on the coming event, but on the one who is to come, Jesus Christ. I like to think of it as the person who you're talking to, but they're not looking at you while you're talking to them. I think all of you have had an experience like that, where you're speaking to them, but they're not looking at you. They're actually looking over your shoulder to the left or the right at the person behind you that they would rather be talking to. They're so fixated on them that they're not listening to you. That's what it's like to be looking for the coming of Jesus Christ, focused on the details, but rather than being focused on the person of Jesus Christ. And in so doing, we miss him altogether. Believers, have you missed him altogether? You've trusted him by faith, but you go through most of your days without even giving a thought to Jesus Christ. Study the object of your hope. John Owen says, the reason that Christians don't benefit more from the grace that comes through hope in Christ is because they do not abide in thoughts or contemplations 
of the things hoped for. Read good Christian books like Richard Baxter's The Saint's Everlasting Rest and set your mind on the good news of the future that is brought to you in Jesus Christ. Surround yourself with people who are fixated on Jesus. The church is one body. The people of Christ share in one hope in Christ. You cannot grow in hope if you remain in isolation, and it is possible for you to be in community around people all of the time and still be in isolation from them by not actually speaking to them about the hope of the gospel. Look often to the cross. Our passion for Jesus Christ is strengthened by seeing the love of Christ displayed in the cross. The more that we consider the depth of our sin that required the cross and the wonders of his love that are displayed on the cross, the more fully that we will set our hope on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope on Jesus Christ. Think of Jesus Christ. But unbeliever, I wonder if you're here today, if you've missed him altogether as well. You've heard of him for sure, and you're here today, and we're thankful for that. But you've never trusted him by faith. The Bible says that the reason that you haven't trusted him by faith is that the God of this world has blinded your mind from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ in the person of Christ who is the image of God. But God in his loving providence has brought you here today. And the scripture tells us that if you confess your sins and trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross, God will forgive you of your sins and he will open your eyes to see the wonders of his love in the person of Jesus Christ. He took on flesh, was born of the Virgin Mary, lived obediently throughout the entirety of his life, went to the cross willingly and died vicariously in your place because he loved you. And if you trust in him, he will save you from your sins. Come to him today. That is the gospel message that we preach each and every week. He will save you from your sins. He is a merciful savior. If you wanna learn more about what it means to trust in Jesus Christ, we would love to talk to you about the gospel. We'd love to point you to Christ. I'd love to speak with you at the tunnel after the service. We'd love to open the Bible with you. We'd love for you to take one of those copies of God's word home with you so that you can learn about Jesus Christ. Hope is ready. Hope is fixated. Notice third, hope is transforming. Look at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Before issuing the command to be holy, Peter gives its negative counterpart. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Passions that characterized the desires of these elect exiles before their conversion to Christ. Passions like 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3, living in sensuality, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Peter describes that time of their life as a time of ignorance. We use the word ignorance and we think that it's a pejorative slur, that it's a mean thing for Peter to say, for, for Peter to say. but there's a difference between being ignorant and having an inability to learn. You can be ignorant of something and not yet know it. That is vastly different than somebody who has an inability to learn something. Peter says that they were ignorant at one time. They did not know, but now they are no longer ignorant. They know something. They have been able to learn something. And as a result of knowing something and learning something, they are now to live differently in the world. They are called to something different. Peter reiterates for them that the Christian life is not passive. Because they are no longer ignorant, they are to act. 
ungodly desires still beckon the believers. Any Christian who's been a Christian for any length of time in the room knows this, that there are still ungodly things that you think. And there are still ungodly things that tempt you. And there are still things in your life that try to pull you away from Christ. And there are still things in your life that would cause you to doubt the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are still many days in your life when it's hard for you to believe the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But by preparing their minds for action and by being sober-minded, they learn to refuse bad desires and choose what is good. As a result, they do God's will, verse 14, as obedient children who obey their parents. The phrase reminds us that believers are begotten by God. And it teaches us that Peter does not simply tell Christians that they are to go do good in their own strength. They're God's children. And because they are God's children, they are to obey God in God's strength. Because as we saw in verse two, obedience is the fruit of conversion. First Peter chapter one, verse two. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. Peter had no conception of a Christian life where believers were able to give mental assent to the gospel of Jesus Christ and not have to obey. So throughout this very letter, he calls them to obey and to submit and to subject themselves to institutions and to masters and to husbands and to elders, particularly when they are being taken advantage of. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. Verse 6, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, likewise you who are younger be subject to the elders. As those who have, as one preacher said, hearkened to the gospel, obedient children turn from sin and they submit themselves to Christ as Lord and Savior, and they demonstrate their submission to Christ by their reverent submission in this life. The hearing of children, Peter tells us, is made evident by obedience. Every parent in the room knows that they are most delighted when their children hear their voice and obey their voice. Peter is saying the same basic thing here for Christians. You hear the voice of God in the scriptures, and you obey the voice. But when you hear the voice of God in the scripture and you do the opposite of what the scripture teaches, you are either showing yourself to not be one of God's children or to not be an obedient child. There is no such thing for Peter as someone who can call themselves a Christian and look at God's word and say, I'm not gonna do that. I would rather do this and I'm still a Christian. The hearing of children, Peter tells us, is made evident by their obedience because if we are in Christ, we cannot continue to follow the lusts and passions and desires that controlled our lives when we were in ignorance to the Father. Brothers and sisters, there's, if there's nothing different about your life after your profession of faith in Jesus Christ, then perhaps you've never really placed your faith in Jesus Christ at all. 
as we've said many times before, if nothing's changed about your life, then perhaps nothing has changed. And if you are being shaped primarily by what you read online or hear in the news or see in theaters or observe in the culture, then you are being conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Hope is ready. Hope is fixated. Hope is transforming. Notice fourth, hope is holy. Look at verse 15. But he, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. As God has effectually called them out of darkness into light, so he calls them to holy living. But the reference in verse 15 to calling is significant because once again, Peter helps us see that grace precedes demand. Did you notice it? Look at the verse again. But as he who called you is holy, grace or indicative, you also be holy in all of your conduct, demand or imperative. It is absolutely essential that we see this. Otherwise, we might be tempted to think that Peter is saying that holiness is simply living a morally upright life in your own strength. But that's not what Peter is saying at all. All holiness stems from the God who has called us into the sphere of the holy, and it is patterned after God himself. Verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. The holiness of their lives and our lives is to match that of the God who, verse 15, called them to himself. He has delivered them from the domain of darkness and transferred them into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom they have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And they are to be holy like him. Their new future in the new calling results in these elect exiles living differently. So Peter urges them in chapter two, verse 11, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against their souls. They're to separate themselves from evil desires in the world and they're to live in a way that pleases God, which is actually not even a new command in scripture. We've read about it all through the service today. Leviticus chapter 18, verse two. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, under the New Covenant and the Old Covenant, to be holy is to separate oneself from evil. It's a command that reaches to every area of our life. So Peter says in verse 15, be holy in all of your conduct. No sphere of your life is outside of God's dominion. And the call to holiness is grounded by Peter in verse 16 with a reference to scripture. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. A reference that alludes to a dominant theme throughout all of the book of Leviticus. Chapter 11, verse 44. For I, the Lord your God, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Chapter 19, verse 2. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Chapter 20, verse 7. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, 
for I am the Lord your God. Chapter 20, verse 26. You shall be holy to me, for I am the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples, that you shall be mine. God's people are to live holy and pleasing lives because God is holy and good. And they are, verse 16, to model their holiness after God himself. Why? One commentator helps us see the implications of what Peter's trying to say for us. In covenantal thinking in the Old Testament, blessing to the nations is important, but it's not the starting point. Israel must first be holy. And this appears to be Peter's emphasis as well. The minimal reference to evangelism in dialogue is not because his primary concern is the church's survival and persecution, though that is certainly a factor, but because he also sees the starting point as holiness in the covenant people. There is no successful evangelism by unholy people. There is no such thing as a Christian who is maturing when they are in conscious sin and walking away from Christ. There is no such thing as a healthy church with a group of unholy people. To be holy is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength and to love our neighbor as ourself. It cannot be reduced to a limited number of holy actions. I was actually speaking to a lady over the weekend who told me that when she was growing up, there was a website that they were referred to by their church that if they would look at it, it would tell them all of the places that they needed to boycott and why and all of the things that they didn't need to do and why and all of the foods that they should not eat and why. And eventually what it did is it condemned her and it made her realize this is not sustainable. But if we're honest, even though we hear that and we know that that is absurd, that is exactly how so many of us live our lives. Give me the rules. What is the list? Tell me all of the one right things to do and then I'll do them and God will be pleased with me and he will bless me. Probably you're here today because you do not believe the prosperity gospel. Functionally today, Many of us believe the prosperity gospel. And we come to a passage of scripture that is so familiar and dangerous because we reduce God's holiness and his command of holiness in our lives to a list of the things that we'd rather not do anyways or the things that we're going to do anyways. I'm gonna read my Bible like I always do, therefore I'm holy. I'm not gonna murder anybody just like I haven't ever murdered anybody, therefore I'm holy. And that is not what Peter is saying is all. Holiness is this all-encompassing reality in the life of a Christian. And he has spent three verses, and I've spent about 40 minutes trying to drive the point home for you already. That the reality is, is that it is not a simple list. It is very possible for you to be a member of our church and be living an unholy life. And it is very possible for you to affirm everything in our doctrinal statement and sign off on it again afresh today and be living an unholy life. And it is very possible for you to say the truth of the gospel to an unbeliever and be living an unholy life. But the reality is, is that there is no power in an unholy life. And the reality is, is that we know holiness when we see it. There's lives that we walk away from, and when we walk away from those people, for those of you who know what I'm talking about, you've been around it and you've seen it. You are a better person for having been in fellowship with them. 
and you know more of God because you now know them. And you are inspired to holiness because of how they are living, not because of any list that they're keeping. Peter wants us to see that there is no success in persevering as elect exiles apart from holiness. So he begins by reminding them of what God has done. Think of his amazing grace and the wonders of his love and the fact that he has called you and the wonders of his mercy poured out in your life. And as a result of that, because you see that and have responded to that, now live distinct in the world. Live differently from other people in light of a future reality that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ because that is more glorious. Is it more glorious to you? Is that picture what is in your mind right now and consuming your life? The grace that will be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ or something else dominating your thinking. Peter tells us to be holy, is to love God with all of our being. And Jesus tells us that it's seen in the way that we love our neighbor as ourself. It seems as an impossible standard. Be holy because God is holy. How are you possible or capable of being holy like God? How is that possible? It is an impossible call, but there is a wonderful simplicity to it because it's not based on any encyclopedic knowledge of endless directives in our lives. It simply flows out of our love for God and it is patterned after God himself and it is fueled by the gospel. Because of the gospel in verses three through nine, we have energy to be holy. We have the ability to be holy. And any holiness or conformity in your life that does not flow out of the grace of the gospel is legalism. Anything that drives conformity to Christ apart from the gospel is something other than the real gospel. We imitate the love of grace that saved us and the love of God's compassion poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, the love of God himself who is unremittently good. This past week, I was speaking to one of our members about Boyd and we were speaking about his life and for those of you who know him, you know exactly what I'm referring to. But one of the things that this member said to me that stuck out that I'll never forget, is that if he died today in contrast of living 100 years more, he would never be able to die richer than he will die today. That because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, people have literally poured out their lives for him. He would have died forgotten and unremembered, and now he will die remembered and commemorated and mourned and grieved. He will never be forgotten by this congregation. And you have poured out your lives. You've imitated the love of God. God loved you when you were unlovable. And he loved you when you could do nothing for yourself. And he loved you in spite of yourself. And he loved you when you were hard to love. And he loved you when it was difficult to love you. And you've imitated that love by loving your brother as yourself. That is what holiness looks like in our lives. And that's what it flows out of in the Christian life. The calling is one for every Christian here, no exceptions. It's not simply for pastors or elders, aspiring missionaries or interns or elders or deacons. Every Christian here, poor or rich, learned or unlearned, influential or totally unknown is called to be holy. But I am convinced that that is not the greatest danger for us this morning. 
I'm convinced that the greatest danger for all of us this morning is what Jerry Bridges calls cultural holiness. A holiness that adapts to the character and behavior of Christians around us rather than to God. And the people that you spend the majority of your time with, you will either be more or less godly based on how you're around them. But God has not called you to be like the people around you. As he who called you is holy, you be holy. As the one who has saved you is holy, so be holy. Holiness is conformity to God's character. And the love of God through Jesus Christ should be our primary motivation for holiness. The holiness of God is an exceedingly high standard, a perfect standard, but nevertheless one that he holds us to because he cannot do less because he is holy. And while it is true that he accepts us solely based on the merits of Christ's work for us on the cross, God's standard for our character and our attitudes and our affections is this in verse 16. You shall be holy. How many times in your life recently have you made an excuse for your character thinking, God can't really want me to do that? To which Peter says, that is exactly what God wants you to do. You shall be holy, for he is holy. We must take this seriously if we are to grow in holiness, and we must take it seriously as we approach this table. The Lord's Supper is a reminder to us of what Peter has proclaimed, the free gift of God that has been secured through the broken body and the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. On the night leading up to his crucifixion, Jesus sat down in the presence of friends who would betray him and an enemy who would turn him over, and he put forward this sign and pledge of his love for a continual remembrance of his sacrificial death and of the spiritual sharing of his risen life. And it is in these holy mysteries that we are made one with Christ and Christ with us as we are made one in body with him and members one of another. Friends, because of the great love with which he loved us and in obedience to his righteous command, we as the church now render to our God never-ending thanks for the creation of the world and his continual providence over our lives and for his love that he has shown for us on the cross. He himself took upon flesh and humbled himself, and died on the cross, and has exalted us to everlasting life by faith. But if we're going to approach the table rightly today, and share in this ministry, then we have to remember the dignity of the Lord's table. And we have to remind ourselves of what Paul says to us as we approach it. Hear the word of the Lord. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. As the benefit is great if we approach with repentant hearts, so the danger is great. Hear what Paul says when he's warning us of the types of sins in our lives that can no longer characterize them. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, all things that we would expect him to say, but then notice the interpersonal sins. 
strife, enmity, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, and things like these. Brothers and sisters, if there is sin in your life that is characterizing your life, then the most godly thing that you could do today is not approach the Lord's table because you will be judged for it. And on account of it, the wrath of God is coming. But if you are here today and you are repenting of your sin, aware of it and trying to throw it off, this heavenly food is for you. But examine your life and your conduct right now. Is there anything that you've done in your life that has offended a holy God? Is there any bitterness that you have with other members of this church or people who are in this room with you today? Abstain from the table. But if not, approach boldly and be confident that the one who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, by his grace will lead you safely home. Hear the word of the Lord as we are reminded of the wonder of his love for us in the confession of sins. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you've repented of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ, if you've been baptized, if you're a member of a church that preaches the same gospel as this church, then we invite you to the Lord's table today. In just a few moments, there'll be two lines. We're gonna ask you to take a piece of the bread and a cup of the juice. You can take it back to your seat and we'll take it all together. If you don't feel comfortable breaking off the bread or taking a cup of the juice, we have some communion kits here that you can take as well with you back to your seat so that you don't have to touch uh, the same bread or grab juice from the same uh, place as someone else. But just hold on to that and then in a few moments, we'll take it together. I'm gonna ask you to stand. I'm gonna pray for us and then we will come and take the elements. Father, we ask today that you would help us. Help us as we look to the standard of your holiness and be reminded what it costs you in sending of your son to die in our place on the cross. Because you are a holy God, you could have no fellowship with unholy people. And your son, our Lord Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, came to save us from our sins and make us righteous in your sight. And as a result of that, we approach this table boldly today. Father, we ask that you would help us now to celebrate his work for us and for our salvation. And Father, we pray that you would help us now to take seriously sin in our lives. And we pray, Father, that you would comfort us now because we know that the battle is long and hard. And Father, we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ the righteous. Amen.